Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So we have one data point, that is to say one topic today. The data point there is 14% which is the percentage by which the stock price of aircraft manufacturer Boeing has fallen since a mid-air incident several weeks ago in which a part of a fuselage became detached from a 737 MAX airplane mid-flight. FAA issued a safety alert recommending visual inspections of mid-exit door plugs on Boeing 737-900ER planes because they have the same door the design. Online travel agent Kayak will allow customers to exclude Boeing 737 MAX 9 planes from flight options. And it comes as the FAA announced the expansion of its investigation to include... Fortunately, no one was injured, but that incident came after a number of other safety disasters, including multiple crashes of the 737 MAX a few years ago after in-flight software malfunctioned. The FAA, America's Federal Aviation Authority, has now halted the production of the 737 MAX. CEO Dave Calhoun is expected to have to testify about his company's safety record before Congress, and the company is expected to continue losing market share to its main or only real rival Airbus, the European aircraft manufacturer. So, yeah, we thought we'd dig into uh, one of America's most important manufacturers, Boeing, and the troubles it's facing. But first off, Adam, I wanted to ask, what exactly is the 737 MAX? Clearly, it has had many problems, but what was its advantage supposed to be? I mean, what problems was this particular aircraft engineered to, to solve? So it's the latest generation of the most successful narrow-bodied passenger aircraft ever made, which is the 737 series introduced by Boeing in 1967, as old as, old as me, initially for short-haul flights. So this was really in the early days of large-scale mass commercial air travel, and then through upgrades turned into also a workhorse on long-haul, even transcontinental flights. It's a stubby single-dialed you know aircraft it's one which defines for most people i think conventional air travel I, I believe the new york berlin route is probably almost flown on 737s maybe that's too far the way you upgrade aircraft like this is either you redesign them and rebuild from scratch or you you change the engines which is what's happened with the 737 over its more than 50 year lifespan and that's what the max program came out of. Before that, there was the next generation, I think it was called NG 737s. And that is where I think the sort of the trouble starts, because this was a competitive response by Boeing to 
the increasingly dominant position of Airbus, or at least the increasingly powerful competitive position of Airbus in this essential space. I mean, we're talking about the real mass market for aircraft manufacture here. Almost 12,000 737s have been delivered over the lifetime of the aircraft to date, and thousands more will be delivered, no doubt, in future. Airbus enters the commercial aircraft scene in the 1970s. Originally, it's not taken very seriously by the Americans because it was delivering very small numbers of aircraft. But then in the 1980s, with the A320 series, Airbus really scores a major breakthrough. By the late 90s, when JetBlue got going and building its fleet, it opted to be composed entirely of A320s, which are following, broadly speaking, the design template of the 737. But Airbus made different engines, different configurations. And the real shock which launched the 737 MAX upgrade was the fact that Airbus was launching a thing called the Airbus 320neo, which was, and again and again, the crucial thing is here, adding more powerful or more fuel economic, more fuel efficient engines to the Airbus. And the precipitating sort of shock was the announcement in private to Boeing by American Airlines, which hitherto had been exclusively reliant on Boeing aircraft that it was seriously considering and then eventually did buy a substantial fleet of Airbus 320 Maxes. And this triggered a kind of crisis of the soul at Boeing. They were in the middle at the time of thinking about a long-term replacement for the 737. But what they did instead was to respond more rapidly under this commercial pressure, and they made the decision in 2011 to try another upgrade of the 737 to keep pace with uh, Airbus's successive upgrades. And in doing that, and this is where the rub really comes in, what they did was to unbalance the aircraft because it's a fairly stubby aircraft, even after it's been lengthened, and they moved the the new engines forward in the balance of the aircraft, and that produced a, a really dangerous instability. But because they were under so much commercial pressure, the thought of doing fundamental redesigns was very off-putting because it would have required a huge overhead in retraining all of the pilots who are currently trained and, and, and licensed to fly 737s on a fundamental redesign. So Boeing decided that what they would do would be put a software fix in, which would mean that the new in its basic design layout and behavior, now quite fundamentally different aircraft, the 737 MAX with these newer engines moved forward on the aircraft, would behave to the pilot as though it was an old 737. And so then they could claim to the FAA that they didn't need to recertify the aircraft and they didn't need to retrain all of the pilots. And that's what went wrong and claimed the lives of the you know the pilots and the, the crew and the, and the passengers in the two disasters that happened in 2019. I mean, it's really a case of commercial pressure, shortcuts on the part of the corporation leading to, and and the, as it were, the downfall of an American champion at the hands of European competition that, or the the threat of, of a fundamental shift that really triggered this series of decisions and made the 737 into the MAX in particular into such a problematic aircraft. So, uh, of course, this software malfunction wasn't the only manufacturing problem that Boeing has had recently. You know, obviously, again, this door plug in the fuselage that flew off mid-flight, that was one that has gotten the world's attention. But even just the day before recording this, uh, there was a Boeing 757 that lost a wheel on uh, the runway, I think. You know, it's just sort of a string of such incidents uh, with Boeing aircraft. 
seem to be piling up. I'm curious, are these manufacturing problems somehow more than coincidence? I mean, are they traced to something more fundamentally wrong with Boeing, whether it's its corporate culture, its approach to engineering or safety, or its financial strategy, more broadly speaking? I mean, does Airbus have a markedly different approach on on, on these questions of safety or, or financial strategy, et cetera? Yeah, one in in trying to make sense of these incidents at Boeing, it's an interesting sort of historical problem almost. Because, I mean, if you actually tot up the number of flights taken in 737s and Boeings in general, it isn't as though we're talking about here a, you know, a track record of disaster consistently. I mean, that would be a huge exaggeration. Obviously, with an aircraft, any problem ever is always an issue. Broadly speaking, it remains true that over time, it's become safer to fly, not more dangerous. And so there is a, a risk in, if you like, over-interpreting what's going on, especially because Boeing does have this status as an iconic company within the roster of American industrial firms. And there is a declinist meme about in which stories, very powerful stories, some of which may indeed have more than a, you know, more than a grain of truth to them, are told about the way in which American capitalism has functioned. And the story that is told is that the bean counting, financially driven, uh, shareholder, accountable executives have come to dominate American industry and business from the 1980s onwards. And Boeing is the latest and most significant victim of that trend. That's the kind of narrative frame. If you read somebody like Matt Stoller at his you know, newsletter, Big, this is the sort of the frame into which this is fit. It's a kind of romantic narrative of the decline and fall of what was once an icon of engineering probity at the hands of accountants. And it's a, it's a compelling story in part because it's so ironic and twisty. Boeing was part, once upon a time, of a relatively diversified American aircraft industry, an aerospace industry that really flourished and boomed in World War II. Uh, it was always closely tied to the American government, but then took off its, and became a major com- driver of commercial air travel in the post-war period. But by the 1990s was fall and fallen on hard times, large parts of it anyway, especially with the end of the Cold War and the Clinton administration, notably his Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bill Perry, himself a product of the military industrial establishment, pushed hard for a consolidation of the aircraft sector with the consequence that McDonnell Douglas, which was bought out by Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, I'm old enough to remember when they actually produced commercial aircraft that were widely used, the MD-90 and so on. And the Boeing absorbed McDonnell Douglas. And the story of the Boeing's decline and fall is told in an ironic inversion in which the failed executives of McDonnell Douglas end up in control of Boeing. They end up as a kind of reverse takeover by with Boeing's money in which actually the corporate culture of McDonnell Douglas becomes dominant. And the effect of this is to downgrade engineering within the company, to tear down the firewall, which Boeing purists insisted had previously existed between the government contracting, the military, the NASA side, and the commercial side, with the commercial side being a streamlined, efficient engineering operation and the government side not so much. And then finally, the business being run by non-engineers who are prioritizing shareholder value and so on and so forth. And so the story goes that this is what really is the fundamental basis for you know, this series of problems at Boeing, which add up to the picture of a company that has profoundly, profoundly failed. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not enough of a specialist in the industry to be able to judge the veracity and really how convincing these kind of stories are. 
the number of incidents of failure are not so huge. It's just an industry where if you have even one failure, one is too many and the results are catastrophic. So there's a problem of like causal explanation here where a single glitch can cause catastrophic results. And so then you look for fundamental explanations for a single glitch, whereas this could be to a degree bad luck. There are, however, and there is a compelling structural story of how Boeing got itself into this mess. Certainly many Boeing insiders for decades have been complaining about the culture of the company and the way in which the McDonnell Douglas influence has changed it. One thing I think, you know, I, I will be tempted to stand further back and say, well, look, you know, businesses and organizations and capitalist businesses have mixed motives. It'd be surprising if they functioned well all the time. Another question you might ask is how far external regulation might actually be the difference here, not so much internal corporate culture as external regulation. Of course, the two things interact. And there, the contrast you could ask is between the European regulators and the American regulators. And from the debacles of Boeing, extraordinary stories have emerged of the degree to which the FAA is essentially captured by Boeing in the sense that the FAA, a little bit like financial regulators before 2008, kind of put its hands in the air and simply said, look, you guys know what you're doing. How are we going to second guess you? Why don't we just delegate this to you to a considerable extent? Now, that again is not a specifically American story. If you look into the details of how European aircraft regulation works with Airbus, it's essentially the same because there's such a massive asymmetry of information. But when the Government Accountability Office, at the behest of Congress, did an inquiry into this, what they found were a series of really tiny, but perhaps in the end rather significant differences in the procedures used by the European as opposed to the American regulators on this point. Both delegate to a considerable extent to the businesses that they're regulating, because anything else, it would require you essentially to duplicate the engineering team outside the business with, with very unpredictable results. So they don't do that. But it seems as though the Europeans have a series of tougher checks and balances in place within the regulatory apparatus, which make it less likely for capture to happen or just simply um, snafus, just disasters of various types to ramify and become, uh, become more serious. The result of that is that now in very invidious comparisons are being drawn between the corporate culture of Airbus, which is described as you know rational people making airplanes in a safe way, and a picture that's being painted of Boeing, which leaves one feeling that it's a company with an out-of-control safety culture. Difficult as an outsider who isn't an expert in aerospace, you know, engineering and construction to gauge these narratives. But that's certainly the place that Boeing's in right now. It's a sort of symptom of the American malaise in a broader sense. So I'd like to take a closer look at this manufacturing process of, you know, aerospace vehicles in general and Boeing in particular. I, I mean, obviously, these are highly complex manufactured products. Any given airplane would be. And I'm curious, do they tend to be more vertically integrated, to use that buzzword? You know, are the various parts of any given airplane all sort of manufactured in-house? Or are aircraft themselves globalized in the same way that much of our other manufacturing is, you know, with global supply chains that we've become so used to talking about? You know, parts of airplanes, are they sort of outsourced around the world? Uh, how, how exactly does that work? You might think on the face of it, right, that a product is complicated and where safety is so much paramount concern that you would want to do everything in-house. But really, from the beginning of the industrial aircraft 
manufacturing business. That's never been true with regard to what absolutely crucial component, which is the engines, whether you're talking about the you know fabulously powerful internal combustion engines, which drove the World War II aircraft or the jet engines that have come afterwards. That's always been a separate business because in one case, it was internal combustion. So it was Rolls-Royce, Mercedes, BMW, you know, the BMW logo, that blue and white, you know, the circle with the cross in the middle, that's a stylized representation of a propeller. So, you know, the people who made high performance internal combustion engines also made the ultra high performance engines necessary for aircraft. And likewise, when you get into the jet age, you want somebody who's a specialized turbine manufacturer making your engine. And so GE, for instance, in the American case is a preeminent supplier because they do turbines of all types. So that element was always outsourced. As the avionics gets more complicated, who do you want doing doing the electronics? You presumably want an electronics specialist doing the electronics. And then you're left with the airframe component. And in the end, what's happened over the last 20 to 30 years is that manufacturers, both Airbus and Boeing, think of themselves crucially as system integrators, as designers of aircraft, as testers of aircraft, as assembly management organizations, if you like, with the majority of the value added in the aircraft being bought in by from highly specialized manufacturers. And this is, you know, if you if you look at, um, there was a good report recently on the, you know, ultra sophisticated uh, lithography machines that are necessary for making chips nowadays, same model. Once you reach a certain level of sophistication in manufacturing, it's very difficult to do it in a solidly vertically integrated system. It doesn't make much sense. I think the suggestion about Boeing is that they have pushed this to a remarkable extent. And furthermore, they have a sprawling, globally ramified um, network of suppliers. Right now, the attention is mainly on Spirit, which does the airframe components, which used to be an integral part of Boeing and was then spun spun off. You see the same thing in automotive with GM and Ford spinning off many of their subcomponent factories, which used to be part of Ford and GM, now emerge as separate component suppliers. That's what the case with Spirit. But Boeing has essential manufacturing relationships with companies in South Korea, in Japan, in Europe, in Britain, in Italy. It has design shops. It used to have a big design shop in Moscow. It has technology centers in China. It positions itself as a global firm. And there's a very fundamental commercial logic to this, which is that Boeing is America's largest exporter. A huge share of Boeing's business is done abroad. And when you're selling something as strategically sensitive as an aircraft, one of the ways in which you get customers to buy, because this is a inherently political and it always involves governments, is that you promise to transfer some of the high-tech production to the country that you're selling the aircraft to. And so this is a key part of the logic of Boeing. Again, people who want to not Boeing said, oh, yeah, this is typical. This is what happens when McDonnell Douglas that comes out of the military side basically does the pork barrel kind of techniques that you use when you're trying to get a big aircraft project through Congress, which is you promise every Congress person that their constituents who will get a plant it's a global phenomenon, and this is how this kind of global business is done. So, And it's most dramatic, not so much, I think, with the 737, but with uh, the Dreamliner, the 787, which was a truly global a global project. Um, but it's true even of the, you know, the hyper-complex fighter aircraft, the F-35, uh, that we've spoken about on the show previously. That is a global network of manufacturers feeding into an American final assembly uh, project, but each decision and each locational decision are fraught with both commercial and geopolitical calculation. 
so we will take a break right here, but be back in a second to continue talking about Boeing. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. So when it comes to the human capital necessary to make these planes. I'm curious how that works. I mean, when it comes to recruiting engineers, do firms like Boeing and Airbus, for that matter, do they compete with aerospace firms like SpaceX that, that we've heard about, the, the, the company uh, established by Elon Musk to create spaceships to go into outer space? I mean, or you mentioned car manufacturers as other kind of highly complex manufacturers. I mean, are they, are, is Boeing and competing with car manufacturers like BMW or, yeah, I mean, how transferable are the engineering skills in, involved in making planes? Yeah, I mean, this is a really fascinating angle on this. And if you if you dig into, you know, jobs and job options and go online, you find some extraordinarily revealing accounts of the life of a Boeing worker on platforms like Reddit, for instance. Now, obviously, there's huge selection bias here in that the people who go on those platforms to grumble are the people who are are not exactly happy with their workplace, but there is an awful lot of it, an awful lot of knock on Boeing as a highly bureaucratic, backbiting, uncomfortable place for engineers to work who are not given the space and the freedom to you know, deploy their creativity and their talents that they would anticipate. There's not a happy scene, the Boeing Reddit page business. Where they go, apparently, most recently, because there have been a wave of defections from Boeing unsurprisingly, given this, you know, disastrous run they've been having, they tend to go to two different locations. One is SpaceX, but the conditions of work at SpaceX are terrible. That's an Elon Musk firm, and it's not a not an easy place to work. That's, however, driven, I think, by a genuine sense of mission. So it's one of those, you know, kind of musky, macho kind of ideas of like working yourself to death to, to achieve this project of ultra low cost uh, privatized space travel the more sort of family friendly option is to move in seattle from boeing's main base in seattle to amazon which is also located there and you might ask what you know amazon has got going well a it's got great terms and conditions they pay extremely well much better than than spacex or at least that's the the knock i'm hearing from these boards, but they also have a drone fleet that they're building. And so there's a kind of Amazon aerospace component that is attractive to folks with, you know, strong engineering backgrounds. 
th- th- there is talk on the boards of like, you know, why doesn't Airbus just pull the ultimate stunt and essentially locate a series of research centers right next door to <laughs> all of Boeing's hubs in the United States and simply cream off uh, the disaffected talent that's out there. But for a long time, I think there's no doubt that one of the effects of consolidating the aerospace business from the very broad-based, I mean, it was the largest manufacturing sector in the US economy by the end of World War II, right? The aerial war, strategic bombing is immensely expensive and consumes a huge share of GDP to the much more consolidated industry of the present with really Lockheed and Boeing being like the last big players on the on the aircraft side. It has diminished the opportunities and the maneuvering. And, and I think that's part of the you know, you could add that as an environmental and contextual factor. It's not just regulation. It's not just the in-house culture. It's also the fact that they're kind of a monopolist. If you want to make civilian aircraft, there's only really two places you can work. Airbus initially did hire a bunch of Americans. It's one of its outstanding um, market men. And then ultimately, Matt's top managers was was an American. But um, yeah, no, it's it's a, a key concern for, for Boeing. So when it comes to Boeing right now, I mean, how bad of shape... Is it exactly in? I mean, obviously, it's had this series of mishaps. Some of them have been deadly. It is losing market share to Airbus, as we discussed. It also has $50 billion in debt. So, you know, you mentioned Boeing is a kind of symbol of U.S. manufacturing. I mean, how how much trouble is it really in? I think it's in pretty serious trouble right now. I mean, Richard Abulafia, who's a widely cited analyst, gave this great quote to the Times, I think, what used to be a duopoly has become two-thirds Airbus, one-third Boeing. A lot of people, whether investors, financiers or customers, are looking at Airbus and seeing a company run by competent people. The contrast with Boeing is fairly profound. I mean, and he is a really seasoned analyst. If you go back and looking at American aircraft industry commentary, you'll see him being quoted for over the last decades. So I think there's a really, there's a sense of a, a dawning realization of just how bad the problems at Boeing are. It is hemorrhaging big orders, uh, and the big markets are all in Asia. Air India has ordered hundreds of Airbus planes. Indigo has has ordered 500 Airbus planes. These are giant orders worth billions and billions of dollars that are flowing to Airbus rather than Boeing. The production plans for the A320neo going forward over coming years are... 50% greater than those at Boeing. And clearly the American regulators and the American authorities are going to be look very cautiously at any plans by Boeing to increase the rate of production on its production lines where it really just, you know, doesn't seem to be in a position to fully guarantee uh, the safety of its products. Though, as I say, I think there is a risk here of exaggerating the degree of risk involved. Uh, The problem, of course, is if anything goes wrong, you know, people die in their hundreds when something goes wrong. But by the standards of other technologies, this remains a relatively, I mean, not just relatively, it remains a profoundly safe technology. So some things are going right all along. And the bottom line is, by all predictions, we are simply going to need tens of thousands of more aircraft in coming years as the Asian market develops. There is a, a, you know, the estimates say that, um, that we're going to be having about 36,000 aircraft in service by 2033. That's up from 27,000 today. So that's a 30% increase over the current level, a one-third increase. And because you have to replace older aircraft, that means that the industrial analysts suggest that 
there's going to be a market for about 45,000 new airliners through the 2040s. Now, obviously, these sorts of estimates are rough and ready. But what that tells you is that if even if you're the number two supplier in an industry like that, you know, it's not as though you're threatened with an immediate collapse. And in fact, it would be incredibly disruptive to the global industry if Boeing did, for whatever reason, go under, because there's no prospect that Airbus could rank up production to match that demand. So it's a systemically important producer of a manufactured good, which for better or worse, only a very small number of firms can make at any kind of level. And I don't think there's really a plausible scenario in which Boeing isn't there over the coming decades to produce to meet some of that demand. Though, yes, I think analysts agree that the balance, which already shifted in the early 2000s, is now decisively on, on Airbus's side. So what if that balance shifts in the other direction, namely not in the direction of a kind of greater monopoly for Airbus, but the introduction of other competitors? And I'm thinking here specifically of China. Obviously, yeah, aircraft manufacturing has been a kind of Western-dominated industry, but does China have a chance of competing for some of this market share itself? It, it does. It is. It, it's happening. It's no longer a hypothetical. So Comac, the Chinese state-owned aircraft manufacturer, launched two projects in 2008 to make a regional jet, a small jet, like the Bombardier or a type, type aircraft on the one hand, and then a direct competitor with um, the A320 and the 737. And both those aircrafts are now in service. The short-haul, smaller regional jet um, has been in service since 2016 on both Chinese and on Indonesian routes. And the um, C919, which is the flagship, um, had its maiden commercial flights last year and is now coming into service with China's airlines. It doesn't have certification for either the European or the American market. So that's where it's currently going to be selling largely into the Chinese market. But the Chinese market is huge. There's uh, estimated demand for about 8,000 aircraft in China in, in coming years. And that's really, I think, the decisive thing is that this market is big growing rapidly. And both Air Boeing and Airbus have difficulty meeting that demand. And the Chinese have now, or at least in the early stages of raising themselves to the technological level that's necessary to make aircraft like this. They, like Boeing and Airbus, are a assembler, ultimately, of components that come from around the world, most notably the aircraft engines, are imported from the same suppliers that service the CF industries, which supplies the Boeing and Airbus um, in the rest of the world. A lot of the avionics also comes from outside. But China is now in a position to be one of the three assemblers of aircraft for, for the future. And I think the size of the market really has turned out to be decisive in the state backing because China wasn't the only country or the only Asian country that launched an aircraft project to compete with Boeing and Airbus in 2008. The other player was Japan with Mitsubishi heading up a conglomerate, a combination, a syndicate of firms that were going to also develop their own regional jet. Uh, Mitsubishi has a long track record of aircraft manufacturing, most legendarily the Zero fighter of World War II, um, when you know Japan produced a very competent range of aircraft at the time. It has huge and deep engineering resources, and it backed out of that project last year. It abandoned the project after spending in the order of $7 billion on investment, which seems to be the kind of ballpark of what the Chinese have spent. The difference is that Mitsubishi is a private firm operating with some government subsidy, but broadly speaking, a private commercial enterprise, whereas the Chinese endeavor um, is explicitly a core national industrial project with the backing of 
a whole variety of stakeholders on the technology side and the Chinese airlines being built-in guaranteed customers to acquire the aircraft when they come off the lines. And so it's that combination of determined technological effort, which the Chinese are not afraid of making and investing in on a large scale. Their overall spend so far doesn't seem to be much bigger than what the Japanese did. But unlike the Japanese, who in the end couldn't see the market for this, the Chinese know that the scale of their domestic market is huge, and the political priority attached to this project will ensure that they will get very large slice of it if necessary to make this a viable project. And this is always about learning. This is about getting on the learning curve with a hyper complex product like this. Initially, it's almost impossible to do. And then if you make the sufficient investment, you will become one of a very small group of firms which can do this at all. And the Chinese are putting themselves in a position to be that kind of supplier you know, over the coming decades. So that competition is real. It will slowly squeeze Boeing and Airbus in the Chinese market without doubt. How much bigger the threat is, I think, is an open question because that will depend on certification and the politics of buying and selling aircraft, which are extremely tricky. So then finally, I wanted to ask, I mean, how should we be thinking about Boeing's status as a private company then? I mean, is it possible to imagine that Boeing could get nationalized? I mean, or is it sort of de facto already state supported through the military contracts that have come up so far in our discussion? I mean, or is this true just generally of aircraft manufacturers, Airbus as well? I mean, are these all kind of state supported companies and it's not possible to separate those two out? I mean, what does the WTO say about that, for example? Yes, I think the sort of realist cynical line will be why bother nationalizing it when it's already so firmly under the control and influence uh, and tied so deeply into the American state machine. I think the argument for nationalizing would be that maybe perhaps if you did that, Congress, politicians, democratic accountability would be stronger than in the current setup where the business appears to have essentially captured its regulator and to a considerable extent to be able to exploit its too-big-to-fail status also to ensure a huge slice of Pentagon contracts with which it is incestuously combined at the board level with you know the extensive hiring of, of ex-military folks. 40% of Boeing's sales are to the American government, which broadly speaking means NASA and the, the American military. It is a firm whose destiny has been shaped by the emergence of the American military industrial complex, most decisively recently by the merger which the Clinton administration managed in the 1990s. And perhaps the acid test of America's commitment to Boeing in this regard is what happened during COVID, uh, the COVID shock in 2020, when in the so-called CARES Act, there was a provision of up to $17 billion in loans for a business critical to maintaining national security. Boeing wasn't explicitly named, in other words, but it was clear that that's what uh, was intended because the travel industry was suffering an epic collapse. Boeing faced uh, a really uh, desperate outlook and Congress stepped in. In the end, the company, with that implicit backing, was able to do better than taking government loans and went to the private bond market and raised the funds there. But de facto, we've already seen a kind of test run of the proposition of whether Boeing can be allowed to fail. And the answer is no, it can't. It is de facto a state-backed, state-guaranteed entity. And that does indeed raise basic questions about the conformity of this sector to norms of you know, international free trade and non-subsidy. And this is significant because Boeing is America's largest exporter, largest single exporter. So America's largest single exporter in the age of globalization is a firm which is essentially an extension of American government 
or incestuously tied together. It's certainly an instance of state capitalism to, to not mince words about it. Likewise, of course, the same is true for Airbus, even more, because Airbus was literally a, a, a nation-state-driven project from the 1970s onwards. It has been, to a degree, privatized, but the French government in particular retains a, a powerful and crucial interest in the firm. And the result is that the WTO has been employed tactically by both sides in a kind of tit-for-tat struggle. The WTO is not autonomous here, but the Europeans and the Americans have used it as a way of, of hitting on each other. They reached um, an agreement in the 1990s uh, known as the Agreement on Trade in Large Civil Aircraft, which was supposed to regulate the degree of subsidy on both sides, regulate the way in which subsidy could be provided, the extent of development costs that be, could be covered. In other words, a serious you know, peer-to-peer -peer decision on, okay, we know we're both going to subsidize, but we're not going to go further than these levels of subsidies. And these are the kind of subsidies we'll provide. In other words, make the subsidy transparent. And then guess what? In 2004, the United States unilaterally withdrew from this agreement and pursued a WTO suit, 2004 being the significant moment at which Airbus decisively overtook Boeing in the global airliner market. So as soon as you heard, as it became clear that the original premise that within that kind of agreement, Boeing and Airbus could compete on the level playing field. As soon as Airbus began to pull ahead, America started a suit against the Europeans. The Europeans then countered with their own suit, seeking, of course, to expose the extent to which Boeing, a nominally private company, is actually subsidized by government contracts. The Trump administration was only too happy to take up the suggestion from Boeing that this might actually be a case for tariffs that could be then levied against the Europeans, which the Trump administration did. And then early in the Biden administration in 2021, very much under the sign of a Western transatlantic rallying against China, the Biden administration and the EU managed to calm this to, to install a new period of peace to, as it were, suspend further WTO aggression or tariff action on this issue. And right now, as of, as of our moment of recording, a kind of fragile peace prevails in this space. Uh, what happens if there were to be, for instance, a new Trump administration further down the line, I think is anyone's guess. This is essentially a running sore. It's a huge zone of global trade, which is deeply politicized and in which sort of conventional norms of liberal economics clearly don't prevail. And so it's really a matter of bargaining between the two sides and the relative power balance at any given moment. Clearly now, America will be acting from a much, much weaker position than it was in the 90s when the deals were first agreed. And it would be very interesting to see what new kind of arrangement would emerge given that two-thirds, one-third kind of vision of the global market going forward. Okay, we do need to uh, stop here for now, but that was a pretty thorough discussion of all things aerospace manufacturing related. But uh, yeah, we will be back next week to discuss another topic entirely. Join us then. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com 
or email us podcast at foreignpolicy.com or you can tweet us that's at ones and twos pod thanks very much for listening and we'll be back in your feed next week politics has never been stranger or more online which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.